Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm Greg Sestick from the Programs Department of the Pratt Library and a current student at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Uh, we'd like to thank the School of Social Work for partnering with us uh, for tonight's talk by Dr. Carl Hart. Um, special thanks to Dr. Bronwyn uh, Maiden and uh, Dr. Michael Lindsay, who's going to introduce Dr. Hart. Uh, if you haven't been here to the Pratt before, welcome. Um, pick up a copy of Compass, which is our library newsletter, on your way out, uh, and sign up if you um, would like to receive that. Uh, it talks about our programs for the next two months, uh, which we have some really good ones. Um, uh, thanks for coming tonight. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Lindsay. Good evening, everyone. So I'm Michael Lindsay. I'm a professor, uh, associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. It gives me a great, great honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Carl Hart. Um, as I got to sort of look at his work and um, his accomplishments, it's really, really a treat to be able to hear from him tonight. Very, very, very honor, uh, honored to be here with him and to hear from him. So let me give you a brief background on Dr. Uh, Carl Hart. He's an associate professor of psychology in both the departments of psychiatry and psychology at Columbia University, and he's director of the residential studies and methamphetamine research laboratories at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Uh, a major focus of Dr. Hart's research is to understand complex interactions between drugs um, of abuse and the neurobiology and environmental factors that mediate human behavior and physiology. So a tongue twister there, but very, very deep into looking at uh, some of these processes. He is the author and or co-author of dozens of peer-reviewed scientific articles in the area of neuropsychopharmacology, uh, co-author of the textbook Drug Society and Human Behavior, and a member of a NIH review group. Uh, Dr. Hart was recently elected fellow status by the American Psychological Association, Division 28, for his outstanding contribution to the field of psychology, specifically psychopharmacology and substance abuse. Dr. Hart will share with us tonight his story of growing up in one of Miami's toughest neighborhoods and how it led him to his groundbreaking work in drug addiction. As a youth, Dr. Hart studied just enough to stay on the basketball team. At the same time, he was immersed in street life. Today, he is a cutting-edge neuroscientist, Columbia University's first African-American tenured professor in the sciences, whose landmark controversial research is redefining our understanding of addiction. He received his undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Maryland and did his graduate training in experimental psychology and neuroscience at the University of Wyoming. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure uh, to host for you and to have Dr. Hart. Um, welcome him, please. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, I love being in Baltimore. You all make no pretense about who you are. I love this place. Uh, unlike DC and those kind of places. So thank you all. Um, it's, uh, it's always difficult for me to talk about this book um, in a way that is condensed and clear uh, to folks. 
in part it's difficult because the book is a hybrid. It's a memoir, it's a science book, it's also a policy book. And the memoir portion, the publisher and those kind of folks, they really love that memoir portion. And personally, I get bored with it because it's my life and it's not anything um, new. And so um, I will try and make sure I, I share some of the, the memoir portion with you. The thing that I find most interesting is the science because when it comes to the science, the American public has been hoodwinked by, uh, in terms of drug abuse science. What you all think you know about drugs, you've been lied to. Uh, and so I find that a lot more interesting uh, than my, my personal story. But I'll share some of my personal story with you. And if what we think we know about drugs are wrong, it means that we need to rethink what we're doing about drugs, drug treatment, drug education, drug policy. And so I'll try and share some of this stuff with you all in, um, I don't know, a half an hour, and then hopefully we can have an engaging dialogue discussion. Because I think some of the things that I say tonight will challenge your thinking. I hope it challenges your thinking, because when I started to learn these things, it challenged my thinking. Okay, so the memoir portion, one of the things that people love to ask is, how did you go from the hood to becoming the first African-American tenured science professor at Columbia? You know, one of the things I want to make clear to you all is that I lived in the hood. I was, you know, I was an active participant in bad behavior and those things. So I was not perfect. And I shared this deeply personal story in my book so young brothers and sisters and people all around could understand that they don't have to be perfect to make a contribution to this society. You know, I reveal a lot of deeply personal, personal stories, many of which are embarrassing. In fact, uh, some of the stories that I reveal make it difficult now for me to even talk to my mom and dad. So um, when we think about the title, High Price, Lord knows I'm paying a hell of a price, okay? <laughs> so I wasn't perfect, as I said. I engaged in drug use, engaged in petty crime. I saw friends who uh, were murdered, incarcerated, and so forth. Um, and all, many of, much of these things I attributed to drugs. But I was in the street life. Uh, I was one of the fortunate ones because I was also a very good basketball player. This is a picture of me in high school playing basketball. Um, playing basketball and sports kept me plugged in the school just enough to make sure that I maintained the high academic standards that were required to be on the basketball team. The standards at that time were not what they are today. They were a lot higher we had to maintain a 2.0 GPA. <laughs> and I barely maintained my 2.0. Um, I also was fortunate to have some strong women in my life. I had five sisters, they were all older, and they acted as surrogate mothers. And I had a grandmother who doted on me. And that was very helpful to make sure I didn't stray too much. I was still down, still hanging out 
in the hood doing those sorts of things. But I knew that if I wanted to play basketball and get the scholarship that I wanted, I had to make, had to make sure I wasn't too far out there. Um, there, were all, there was also important things like government programs in the summer for kids like me who uh, was in a home where my mom was on welfare. There were, that was welfare, welfare uh, as we once knew it. Um, there were summer programs that allow kids like me at 14 years and older to work and put some uh, uh, money in your pocket during the summer. Many of those programs, they left under the Reagan administration. Um, so those kind of programs helped me move along. Uh, and when I didn't get the basketball scholarship that I wanted, I had a guidance counselor who knew how to motivate me. She knew how to, she knew something about reinforcement. Um, she uh, told me that if I took the military test, the ASVAB, uh, I could get out of class for the entire day. Um, <laughs> So I took the test in about 20 minutes, and I was gone. Um, and then several months later, the scores came back, and I was one of the few kids in my school to score high enough to be uh, qual to qualify for the Air Force. Now that's not a big deal. Don't don't think that's a big deal. Most of the smart kids who were going to college didn't even take the test. So I was only competing with the people who were being motivated like me to get out of class for the day. So that's, that's not uh, anything to really be proud of. But I decided to go to the Air Force. In the Air Force, I spent my time overseas uh, in Japan and in England. And it, uh, my time in Japan was one year. My time in England was three years. And it really opened up my mind. One of the things that uh, happened at the time was that I met some, ga some guys in the Air Force uh, when I got to Japan, my first duty station. Um, and they like to smoke weed, marijuana, right? And so I was, had to make sure they knew I was down too. So I had to smoke weed too. One of the things that will happen if you get caught with a urine test that's positive for marijuana, you would get kicked out. So I said, as a harm reduction strategy, I said, well, I will disappoint my sisters if I get kicked out of the military. So to offset that, I started to go to college and take college courses. So if I got kicked out, I would have some college credits, and then at least they would be proud that I was going to school. And that's what I did. Turns out, as I started to go into college, I started to like it, and I started to do well. Uh, by the time I went to England, I was a, a really good student. Um, and then being in an English-speaking country that had no sort of reservations about offering a critical analysis of American society, particularly as it related to race, nearly every evening on the BBC and the other channels, there was something about race in America um, the, the, the PBS series, The Eyes on the Prize, um, I saw it first in England. And there were a number of discussions uh, learning about our sort of history of racial discrimination. For the first time, I had a sort of corroboration of my reality of what I thought was the case in the US, but we weren't having that discussion in the US. And so it really intensified my studies, and um, it really made me a better student. In the end, I ended up uh, finishing, nearly finishing my college 
in my four years in the Air Force, I only needed a few classes when I graduated, I mean, when I uh, got out after four years. And when I got out, I went to the University of North Carolina in Wilmington to finish up. I did so. I met a professor who invited me into his lab um, to do research uh, on the rat brains after they received heroin and nicotine. And so I, I began my sort of drug research career back in 1990 working with this guy. And it was great because I believed that drugs were destroying the black community. And so I figured that this was a way that I could make a contribution to my community, figure out how these drugs were having grabbing hold of our folks. And if I can explain it from a neurobiological perspective, maybe, maybe we could improve the community that I cared about. That's what I thought. So I thought drugs were the cause of all of our problems. And so I went about studying them. I went on to, uh, to the University of Wyoming. Um, not many brothers in Wyoming. Um, <laughs> But Wyoming was the only place that uh, offered me a full ride uh, and accepted me into the PhD program in neuroscience. So I went to the University of Wyoming and I studied nicotine and the uh, um, effects on, on rat brains. While in graduate school, I came across this article. Uh, this is an article um, published in the New York Times, 1914. It was February 8, 1914. The author is Dr. Williams. He was a prominent physician of the time. And in the article entitled, Negro Cocaine Fiends Are a New Southern Menace, he was describing how uh, police officers, police forces in the South were moving from the 32 caliber weapon to the 38 caliber weapon because when black people snorted cocaine, this new form of cocaine, by the way, when black people snorted cocaine, they became unaffected by 32 caliber weapons. <laughs> so you needed to have a 38 caliber weapon. He also pointed out that when black people snorted cocaine, they became more murderous, which is what, what, is, what is even worse is that not only were they more murderous, they became better marksmen. So they could kill people like, with, with a six-round gun. You know, you can take out six people. Uh, and he was describing this, this uh, in great detail in, in this article. Now, as I read the article, I came across this article as I was finishing up my dissertation, my final sort of work in Wyoming. And one of the things that struck me was that it was the language had was similar to what was being said about crack cocaine in 1986, 1987, 1988. The language, of course, in the 80s were tempered, but it was the same sort of stuff. And so I was thinking, hmm, this is interesting. But I just kind of stored that in the back of my head and still thought that, well, drugs are destroying the black community, and I need to figure out how to make my contribution to make sure that um, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So I put that in the back of my head, and I went on, and I went and did a postdoc. So when you do your PhD, uh, one of the things that we do is we do uh, we get uh, postdoctoral training. I had been studying laboratory animals, rats, for my PhD. 
I realized I didn't know anything about human drug use. So I took a postdoc in a lab that was actually studying human drug users. Now, the first year, when I first went to this lab, I thought, like, you know, I was going to set the world on fire. My motto was, I didn't come to bow, I came to conquer. I was, on, I was going to get me a tenured position in an Ivy League institution, even though I had never stepped foot on a campus of an Ivy League institution. Uh, my, relationship, my, my relationship with my advisor was congenial. Uh, each experiment was going to be published in the best journal. Uh, the night before the, the big results, I was preparing for the media interview. You know, I was ready, man. I was ready. By the second year, things had changed a little bit. <laughs> my demeanor now had changed. I was battle-hardened. My motto was life is a marathon, uh, not a sprint. Um, my career aspiration was that job at the, at the local community college. Uh, my relationship with my advisor was now guarded. Uh, each experiment was possible uh, prelude to an important paper. And the night before, I could be at the local bar, found at the local bar. Um, and then by the third year, it was even worse. <laughs> by the third year, my demeanor had become shell-shocked. Uh, my motto had changed. The inmates had taken over the asylum, and boy, that night manager job at the Super Walmart was looking good. <laughs> my relationship with my advisor was openly hostile. I thought these experiments was a waste of taxpayers' money. And the night before the big result, I had forgotten what the experiment was even about. Obviously, uh, things changed, and they did improve. Uh, eventually, they did improve. Uh, and as they did improve, I actually got a better mentor. Um, uh, Marion Fishman is her name. She died in 2001. Uh, but she tucked me under her wing uh, and really made sure that my career was nurtured. And if anything, one of the things that one of the major themes in the books is the importance of mentors. Without mentors, um, I wouldn't be before you today. And the types of mentors, one of the things that some people make a mistake is that they think that you have to have a mentor who is of the same race, the same sex, and that sort of thing. That's not necessarily the case, particularly in your profession. Uh, quite frankly, in science, it's best to have an old white male as your mentor um, because they know how to introduce you to the field that is still predominantly white and male. Um, that's the reality. Now, that's one type of mentor. It's also important to have mentors who look like you, not necessarily in your field. You have to be able to go talk to people about the crazy stuff that you see happen in our environment, in, in academia, because there's some bizarre things that happen. You'd be like, yo, is that me? Uh, some, some real bizarre things. So I had a wide range of mentors, uh, ranging from white women, black men. Uh, and, and all, I had mentors in a wide variety of domains in my life. And that's so important to have a variety of, of mentors. So as I moved on in my career, I was still, ha I still had this mindset that I was going to solve the drug abuse problem by finding the neurobiological mechanism that was causing people to be addicted to drugs. 
And then there were some things that happened along the way that kind of rocked my world that made me not just store in the back of my mind uh, like I did with that Negro cocaine article. There were other things that started to happen. I started to become a, a more critical thinker, and I started to learn things like we had, between 1970, we had a 3,500% increase in funding for the war on drugs and, uh, and did not did not change drug use, particularly daily drug use, one bit. And that's what we said we were trying to change. But the problem is, is that drug use was already so low in the country. It wasn't that high. But we sometimes think that it's higher than it is because the media oftentimes, and in science we also participate in this, we say there's a new epidemic. And then when you actually look at the numbers of people who are using the drugs, always relatively low, always relatively low. But we, we had this huge increase in the war on drugs, and we didn't change drug use. But one of the things um, that, this is just the increase, and most of that money went to law enforcement, of course. Um, an important thing that changed was we started to see this blatant racial discrimination in the application of our drug laws. So when you start to really carefully think about it or see the data, analyze the data, it started to become very disturbing. We started to see that, oh, for marijuana, which is the most widely used illicit drug in the country, each year there are 750,000 arrests for marijuana, uh, by far more than any other drug, and for simple possession. That's what their 80% are for possession. When you start to look at the number and you say, well, the racial breakdown, black people are as high as eight times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, even though they don't use the drug more than white folks. And you start to look at how we were enforcing our drug laws for crack cocaine, which in 1986, we passed legislation to punish crack cocaine 100 times more harshly than powder cocaine. When you start to see that 80, 85% of the people who, are, who were uh, sentenced uh, to, in federal cases for crack cocaine were black, when they don't use the drug any more than their white counterparts, you started, I started to see all of these kinds of things that were happening. And then the things that was really starting to be disturbing is when I was, this is just a, a slide of the U.S. population. Uh, black people represent about 12%. They represent 14% of the drug users, 15% of the people who meet criteria for a drug problem. They, they represent 35% of the people who are arrested for drugs. 55% of the people who are convicted and 75% of the people who actually are sent to prison for drugs start to see all of these things, then you can't help but to agree with Keith Richards when he said, let me be clear, I have a police problem, not a drug problem. <laughs> so you start to see these kinds of things happening. Well, me, I'm starting to, so these things are like starting to pile up and I'm starting to reevaluate the way I'm looking at this. Other things that were disturbing, the crack, the crack baby myth, 
where we said that we should prepare for a whole new generation of kids who were going to be clogging up our uh, adoption systems and uh, who were going to have all these problems in school. Now it's clear that that was overstated. Mind you, the goal here is not to tell people that they should use crack cocaine during pregnancy. They should not. They should eat well. They should exercise. They should do all of those things. So that's not the goal. The point is, is that we overstated the case. And when I started to learn this, just rocked my mind. I started to learn also that what I believed about crack cocaine wasn't true in terms of one hit and you're addicted. Not true at all. When we think about methamphetamine, crack cocaine, heroin, all of these drugs, the vast majority of people who use them, oh, 80, 90% of the people who use them, do so without a problem. They don't have a problem. They're not addicted. They pay taxes. They're responsible people in our society just like people use alcohol, just like the guys who've been in the White House, who are in the White House. <laughs> Barack Obama, of course, used uh, cocaine, used marijuana as a young man. George Bush used marijuana, widely suspected of using cocaine. Bill Clinton used marijuana. This is the more typical drug user, but that's not the view. That's not the view that the public gets. But we've known this for 40 years. In science, we have known this for 40 years. But it's not the view that you all get. Now, another thing that started to blow my mind is that when I was an undergraduate student, one of the things that I learned about drugs is that if you allow a laboratory animal to self-administer a drug like amphetamine, cocaine, they will do so until they kill themselves. That's just how addictive these drugs are, were. This is what I thought. But as I started to look at the data more carefully, when you allow the animal to have other mates in the cage with them, that's not the case. An animal won't kill themselves. In fact, you can disrupt the animal's drug-taking behavior, and they will engage in other behaviors if you put a sexually receptive mate in the cage with the animal. Just like you all, I hope. Um, <laughs> if you allow the animal some sweet drink, if you allow the animal a running wheel, all of these kinds of things will disrupt the drug-taking behavior. And so my initial thinking about how addictive these drugs were it was flawed because I wasn't a careful thinker. I wasn't looking critically at the data, at the design, at the experiments. But then I started to learn all of this stuff. Man, I felt like a colossal fraud had been perpetrated on me when I started to learn all of this. But that's cool. And I thought, well, okay, how about you design an experiment with humans with the same sort of ideas in mind? What happens if you bring some crack cocaine addicts into the lab? You know, people said crack cocaine is so addictive. If you bring in addicts in the lab, of course you pass all of the ethical requirements. Bring them into the lab, give them an opportunity to take a nice hit of crack cocaine, uh, a really good dose that produces nice dose, uh, a nice amount of euphoria, and you provide them with an alternative, an option. An option say something like five dollars or a voucher for some good 
what you find is that if the alternative is attractive enough even to crack cocaine addicts who had a priming dose, a dose to, so they can sample the amount that they would be uh, choosing for, even if you allow these guys to choose to take the drug or this alternative, you can disrupt their drug-taking behavior if the alternative is attractive enough. We showed that. We published that. That was published in 2000. We've known this for some period of time. Uh, uh, the New York Times did a piece on this kind of work, did my work here, and they act as if it was new. And I was embarrassed because there were other people who were better than me who had done these experiments, who had done them as well. And not just me, other people, a number of other people. Same is true with methamphetamine. This is, I'm just going to orient you to this slide. I was, I'm interested in methamphetamine now because that's the new hot drug. If you, this is a 50 milligram dose of methamphetamine here in the red. And this is um, placebo. And this is a choice. They had 10 choices to take methamphetamine. When you give these methamphetamine addicts a choice to take methamphetamine versus nothing, what do you think they're going to take? They took methamphetamine every time. But now, let's give them a choice between methamphetamine and $5. They take methamphetamine now only on about half of the occasion. What happens if you give them a choice between methamphetamine and $20? They never take methamphetamine. We have known this forever. We have known how to disrupt drug-taking behavior. What this means in the real world is that if you give people meaning, jobs, responsibility, skills, all those kinds of things, we can disrupt a lot of this behavior that we are attributing to the drugs. You can't attribute these things to the drug when the vast majority of the people who use the drug don't have a problem. But the simple answer that we all have uncritically accepted was, I don't understand that behavior, so it must be crack cocaine. And there are some awful consequences to that. Our drug policy is the consequence to that. And uh, black men, particularly in this society, are paying the price. Uh, one of the things that we're fond of saying now is that the U.S. Had population represents about 5% of the population, the world's population. But the U.S. has 25% of the world's prison population. One of the things that we don't say, that we should start saying, is that black men represent about 5 to 6% of the U.S. population, but they represent 35% of the U.S. incarcerated population. That's shameful. And it's largely driven by this war on drugs and our drug policy. So. These kinds of facts just blew my mind and made me start to think about these things differently. Uh, and so I started to think about where we were going in science and what I was doing. One of the things that I said I was interested in is methamphetamine. People became uh, very concerned about methamphetamine, uh, particularly uh, there were a number of things said about the dangers of methamphetamine. And people pointed out that methamphetamine caused all of these neurotoxic effects. Neurotoxic being killing brain cells 
and causing damage to the brain and ultimately disrupting people's cognitive functioning. That was the narrative. That was the story. I started to think more critically about everything. So I started to read this literature really carefully. And what I started to discover is that the claims that were being said by scientists did not support the data. The data did not support these claims. So I did a critical review. I published a critical review on methamphetamine and its brain effects and on cognition. The bottom line is this. We wildly overstated the effects, the negative effects of methamphetamine on people. And this here is a serious critical review of that. Um, okay, so you have all of these sort of assumptions that are flawed. And all of these assumptions provide the foundation for our drug policy, our drug education, for our drug treatment. So what do you do? You know, you point out the problems. What do you do now that you've identified the problems? That's the question. Well, one of the things that we can do in terms of, well, before getting to the legal uh, options, one of the things that we can do as a society, if we're really concerned about keeping people safe, we would increase the amount of realistic education surrounding drugs. We know a tremendous amount about drugs. I know how to keep people safe when they use heroin when they use methamphetamine, when they use crack cocaine. I know how to do that. And I say that with a high degree of confidence because I have given thousands of doses of these drugs to people in my laboratory. So I know, without incident, by the way. So I know how to keep people safe, and we know how to keep people safe. So why the hell isn't that information transmitted to the public? So one of the things we can do is enhance our education surrounding drugs. If we know that 75% of the people who die from heroin overdose do so because they took heroin in combination with alcohol or another sedative, 75%, that's why they're dying. Why not have an intense public health campaign to tell people if you're using an opiate like heroin, OxyContin, don't combine it with alcohol. Don't combine it with another sedative. It's kind of simple. Instead, we've chosen to vilify heroin. We've chosen to vilify OxyContin. If we know that one of the sort of dangers of drugs like amphetamine, particularly methamphetamine or, or, or deamphetamine, whatever the amphetamine is, is that it disrupts people's sleep. And sleep is such an important function for uh, 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 behavior for human functioning that uh, if you don't get a, the proper amount of sleep, you increase the risk of having some sort of physical ailment or psychotic illness and that sort of thing. If we know that methamphetamine decreases sleep quite well, public health campaign message. If you're going to take methamphetamine or any other amphetamine, don't do so. Don't take it in large doses near bedtime. Don't do it. Or take lower doses. Or make sure you're attending to your sleep. Also, amphetamines disrupt food intake. We need to make sure that we're eating well and taking care of ourselves. Make sure people understand, if they're taking amphetamines, that they need to make sure they get their sleep 
and eat well. Um, cocaine, you don't, that's not such a big problem because cocaine's effect doesn't last as long. But still, it may be an issue with cocaine, but not as much as amphetamine. But all of these kinds of things, we know. It's you as taxpayers supported the research to find out this information. All right, what about legal alternatives? When I talk like this, people say, so what do you want to do, legalize drugs? No, legalization is one option. Uh, that on a, that's an extreme option, and what we're doing currently is another extreme option. So legalization, as we know, is where you it is what we're doing with drugs like alcohol. I argue that we should decriminalize all drugs, just like they did in Portugal. When I say decriminalization, I mean treat drugs, uh, decriminalize uh, possession. Sales still remain illegal, but possession. Since we are arresting 1.5 million people a year, and 80% of them for drugs, 80% of them are possession, why not decriminalize possession? Now you don't ruin somebody's life or put a blemish on their record. So drugs are still illegal, except that we will now treat it like a traffic violation. Instead of going to jail or having a criminal record, you just may have to pay a fine, depending. We've decriminalized in several growing states now marijuana, but I argue we should decriminalize everything. Now, um, I guess when you, when you have that perspective, it also requires that our education is better, our realistic education is better. I think of drug use in the same way that I think of driving an automobile. Driving an automobile is potentially dangerous, particularly if you do so recklessly, you can kill someone. But we enhance the safety by teaching people how to drive. We have a number of harm reduction strategies to enhance the safety. We don't do that with drugs. I'm arguing that we should do that with drugs. Now, with that, I hope that was provocative enough where we can have a discussion. Thank you. This is really, really exciting. I'm, I'm very glad I'm here, and I'm grateful for your work. And I happen to be reading another book, which I will finish and then read yours, called um, uh, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. And I'm always happy to be mentioned in the same breath as Michelle. <laughs> well, it's companions. And I guess the, the one little piece that when you were talking about the different um, statistics about drug use versus criminalization and all that, I think the one that I didn't hear, maybe I missed it, was the percentage of black men and probably black women who have a record because of drug use and how that is the effect on that. And I mean, I wish that the policymakers were listening to any of this information that you've said has been around for a long time. I think that's the key is that uh, the policymakers and the general public, what that kind of re-education would look like with the racism that still is prevalent. I mean, it's very sad. One of the things that's a great, thank you for your point. Uh, uh, in terms of what's happening with drug policy and black folks, uh, the current administration um, is hearing the message. Uh, a couple months ago at the American Bar Association meeting in San Francisco, uh, Eric Holder uh, announced that the Justice Department will not be enforcing mandatory minimums for drug laws. 
I think that there's a groundswell now. In fact, Eric, Eric Holder used the language of high price twice in this sort of speech. So I think they're getting the message, but the message uh, comes from people like you uh, and the groundswell. It's not going to come from the politician. They are worthless. But, <laughs> but, but, but if you keep uh, on with this message, uh, particularly in this country, we have been become um, cowards when it comes to race, particularly racial discrimination. We can't call a spade a spade, even in the face of this, this egregious injustice that is, that is occurring. And, and so we need to hold the president's feet to the fire, the attorney general's feet to the fire. We voted for those that guy. And if we don't, Shame on us. Hi. Um, are you familiar with David Simon and The Wire and all that? Of course. The Corner? Yeah, of course. I, I am. Okay. Well, you know, um, are you familiar with his coming out and saying that uh, people in juries should just vote to Nullification, quit? yes, I am. Right. So that seems to be a little bit I – mean, are you at odds with him about this thing about uh, remaining criminal offenses or – and if, if you are, what could you elaborate on that a little bit? Or, you know, did you see the house I live in? No. Documentary film. No. So I was in that along with David Simon, um, mm -hmm. and so uh, we both agree that the war on drugs is wrong. I think there is some divergence in that he would prefer to focus on class, um, and other than that, I think we absolutely agree that I, I think that. Um, well, the criminality is what I'm re referring to. You know, his his position is we got to uh, the, the, with the criminality thing the way it is, where it's just going to continue. People are going to still these kids are selling the drugs on the street. You're talking about still still putting them in jail. Yeah, and that's, and um, that's an issue. Um, so one of the things I tried to make clear, but it's probably my fault. 80% of the people who are going to jail for drugs are for possession, not sales. 20% are for sales. So they're going to jail for possession. Small amount of drugs. I guess I'm saying we've got to look at these kids, too, that are just sort of swept up in this. But thank you. Yes. Hi there. Um, thank you for speaking. It's really wonderful to hear you. Um, I had two thoughts as you were speaking. One is a comment that was made by Jeffrey Canada, who is the thinker and education advocate behind the Harlem Children's Zone. And one of the things that he has said about drug usage in the United States that I think really is relevant to our conversation is the idea that you can't banish drugs from a society. If you look at prisons, they're the most tightly controlled aspects of our society, and drugs can't even be banished from there. What he, he, what he goes on to say is that he'd like to see drugs bought and sold in Harlem the same way they're bought and sold in the suburbs. If you can't eradicate them, then the the use and the traffic in them needs to be as discreet and minimized and as, I guess, um, as the harm needs to be reduced as much as possible given the impossibility of eradicating it. Um, so I wanted to bring that comment out because I thought it was relevant. The other comment that I was thinking about was your use of um, the term public education and public service announcement. And I feel like 
I feel like that gives me a little bit of pause as an educator. I think the messages that you're talking about in terms of safe drug use um, need to be heard, but by a targeted audience. And when you call that a public service announcement or a public message, it kind of implies that you're saying that this should be broadcast on the airwaves for public consumption. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on your use of the word public messaging, because I, I, I don't want to misinterpret whether you're saying well, this public is public. messages or, no, or public this is, should go to everyone. No, I got it. I hear you. So the Jeffrey Canada comment. Um, so I wrote this book because I'm a drug expert. Jeffrey Canada is not. Um, so when we think about um, think about societies, human societies, drug use has always been a part of all human societies, and it will always continue to be a, a part of human societies. One of the things I'm trying to do is try, I'm trying to demystify what drugs do and don't do. And in order to change people's behavior, law enforcement, political uh, candidates' behavior, we have to demystify it with real evidence. And that's what I'm trying to do. And so when I talk about public, mes public messaging, I mean for everyone. I have, we have kids who will engage in sex, all the rest of these kinds of things. We want to make sure they can do it right and safely. The same is true with drugs. Now, I have kids of my own, a 12-year-old, 18-year-old, and a 30-year-old. Now, when, when I think about my sort of educating of them, drugs themselves, it's not the big focus. The big focus is that your parents expect you to be successful in life. And here's what you have to do to be successful. If you have any behaviors, a girlfriend, driving your car too fast, video games, anything that disrupts our goals, we got a problem. If it's drugs, we have a problem. So we reinforce long-term goals. The notion that drugs are special, that's the problem. They are not special. I'm a drug expert who's given thousands of doses, and I'm telling you they're not special. But it seems as though there's resistance, and that's how it is. It's going to be resistance. but we need people to make sure that they have evidence when they have uh, points. Make sure their points are grounded in evidence. Otherwise, it's all faith-based. And that's not what I do as a scientist. I follow your rationalization in terms of decriminalization, in terms of how it relates to the inequities, in terms of incarceration. 80% of users primarily black people. I guess my question is, and I'm not sure where your area of expertise leaves off, is going back to what you talked about, alternatives to drug use. You give them $5, they use it less. $20, even more less. Societally, because you're still whacked out if you're using drugs. And if you're on the streets, that's a bad coming up and... That's a bad assumption. I, I have to tell you, that's a bad what's assumption. What's a bad assumption? You're whacked out if you're using, if you're using drugs. Dr I was a drug addict, my man. I'm telling you. You're using drugs. Wait, wait, hold on, You're hold not up. in your right hold, mind. Hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Because you were a drug addict does right. not give you any special expertise on the effects of drugs. Understand that. I mean, if you read my book. I'm going to read your book. Hang on, hang I'm on. Read your hang book. on. You read my book. You'll see that I've used these drugs and all the rest of these things at some point in my life. But I was ignorant about what drug effects are because... Right. I bought into this myth 
into the narrative by the population. But when I step back and look at the actu- what actually is going on, I was able to have a more critical view, a more comprehensive understanding of what drugs do and don't do. Okay. There are people in the audience tonight who use drugs. Okay, and you're and making my point. You're making my and, point. But they're not Listen, whacked out. Let, let, me, let, me say, let me finish what I'm saying. By the way, whacked out may be overstating what I'm trying to say. Okay, that's cool. If you use drugs in your ill-informed, it can have detrimental effects on you. Right on. Just on like your, driving a car and you don't you know, know how to and, drive. And when Absolutely. you come up in certain situations where you see no other alternatives, you don't have that $20, that $5 alternative to do it. What I was trying to get to you was less a matter of what your mental state is on drugs, even though I do believe you ain't in your same mind when you're on drugs. We, you and I could argue about that forever. Yeah, we whether have you're expert or not. Yeah, but the yeah. issue is, in light of the work you do and the knowledge you've gained and your ability, which I appreciate and I agree with in terms of the decriminalization, do you work with other social scientists in terms of how you get people away from drugs? Or are you just saying, let's just decriminalize it and everything is cool? So one of the reasons I wrote the book is so we could start understanding what people need, Mm -hmm. jobs, skills, education, all the rest of those things. That's the point of the book. Rather than focus exclusively on the drug, there are more important factors. That's the point. Okay. Right. Well, that's what I was trying to get to. All right. Um, I'm curious to see how you respond to the statement that all drug use is self-medication of mental illness. Well, when anybody starts with a statement that all, um, be suspect. (laughs) Um, So certainly there are some people who are self-medicating, but then there are some people who are using drugs for very specific reasons other than medicating. Uh, So certainly there are some. Uh, There are some who have comorbid psychiatric illnesses, a wide range of things. Um, yeah, that's, that's true, but not all. How you doing? It's just you a doing? pleasure to hear you. Uh, my name is James. Uh, I'm 30 years in recovery from the 12-step programs, okay? Uh, I just got involved with a new, along with the mayor's office here in the city of Baltimore, and I'm kind of excited. It's called Peer Advocacy trying to take, not counseling, but trying to take when people coming out of young and out of treatment into recovery. What jumped off in your book was looking at addiction in context. Yes, absolutely. You got it. Wow. Uh, that really jumped off the page. Because I'm, I'm volunteering. I, I work for the Benjamins, but I'm also off time. I still go to means. I volunteer. I still spawn. I'm, work, I'm volunteering the methadone program. And I'm trying to help these people get to jobs. I don't do any counseling. Two things. We've got, how can we educate uh, the city? It, it's about re-educating the community along with educating the addicts. But how do you feel about methadone, the methadone program? Uh, I think methadone or any treatment that works for some people. I mean, any medical illness that we have, we have multiple treatments. Methadone is one tool that we have for heroin or opioid addiction, and that's great that we have that tool. There are other tools that may not, uh, methadone may not work for everyone, but it may work for some. And so I'm just happy that we have a tool. 
Thank you for. I was kind of where you were, but I was. Um, ah man, I I think I was in a situation where I was judging judging people. But thank you. you yeah, know. thank you for. That, uh, that word context on page seventy four. That. Uh, yeah, right on. Right on. Thank you for, uh, uh, you know, that, you know, uh, you you make it worthwhile because, like I said, it's been a, a lot of personal cost to me to do this thing. And when I have brothers who get it like that, that's the reason. I mean, we have these generations we are, we, we, we're losing, not because of drugs, but our approach to dealing with drugs. It's, uh, it's my understanding that the problem with the problem with drugs is probably not with the active drug substance that you're using itself, but probably is more in addition to the police reaction. Is it what is the, what's the drug? What are the drugs cut with, and what is the actual quantity of drugs that people are using? You could be using marijuana, and if you found out that it contained a certain percentage, you might just simply smoke more. Smoke, smoke more or less, depending upon uh, the quantity. And so what I'd be wondering about, what is your scientific rationale for saying uh, decriminalization versus legalization? If the drugs were actually legal, we could require that, say, for instance, if a person was taking an injectable drug, that if a person sold an injectable drug, that they would have to sell a clean syringe along with the injectable drug, they would have to let the person know what the exact quantity of the injectable drug that they were giving. I think a lot of people are not trying to take uh, an overdose of uh, narcotics, but they simply don't know how much narcotic they're taking, and then they mix it with maybe alcohol or another tranquilizer trying to get a little boost if they knew exactly how much narcotic they were taking, and a narcotic or uh, whatever the... Great question. Because people would, if you take caffeine, caffeine's a drug, we're saying that's fine. But they tell you don't take but so many pills. No, I got you. Great and question. Um, so your, your, your point is, why am I advocating decriminalization versus legalization? That's a great point. One of the things that trouble me or concern me is that the society, the country, is so ignorant about drug effects that if we legalize drugs, even if we don't have a problem directly related to the drug, the society would be susceptible to believing these incredible stories. And so my approach is maybe decriminalization becomes an intermediary step on the way to legalization. But I would argue that I'd like to have this increase of real education before moving to legalization. That's all. I mean, but I'm open, I'm certainly open to the possibility. Okay, and I under, understand what you're saying. I think I, I kind of agree with the decriminaliz decriminalization strategy myself, but I was looking to see if you had a scientific rationale. It's a sociological rationale, which is the same as which I have. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, sociology is science too. Uh. <laughs> okay. Doc, I want to thank you for the book, and I, I did read it before I came here tonight. And, thank you. Um, it, it was great, and 
one of the things um, to bring up the other, what the other gentleman said, um, setting addiction within a social context. I've worked in the 12-step recovery business, um, you know, in, in a halfway house environment, and I've always kind of wondered. We labeled people in the same way that an arrest for possession labels a person. We label people as addicts, and then the expectation is it's, it's now sort of one of two possibilities. You either stay completely abstinent mm -hmm. or you're, mm -hmm. you've fallen down. And I, to me, there are a range of outcomes that happen, and I want to know if you know of any analyses of a cohort. What happens to people? Do some people just mature out of it? Most people mature out, just like any other deviant behavior. I mean, the point that you make is outstanding. Uh, we in the addiction field have also been uh, slow with this because if somebody has been using drugs five days, seven days a week, and then they have some intervention, some treatment, now they're being cleaned for a month, two, I don't know. However, they used later one day a week, but they're able to go to work, they're still paying taxes, they're doing well. That's not a failure, that's a success. But in many of our studies, that's considered a failure. And that's a very narrow way of looking at it, and that's a problem. You point out a problem that is not only in your area, but it's also in mine. Um, and, and so I think we need to make sure that we keep talking about that and say, hold up, let's look at what the major outcomes that we really care about. Are people productive? Are people handling their responsibilities? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, uh, thank you for coming. I read your article thank in the New York you. Times, and all of a sudden you're here. And I was like, yes, this is awesome. Um, so my question is, I work in the public health field. And I'm actually just starting a program at uh, Baby working with substance abuse um, patients. Um, anyway, so I was just wondering, what is the collaboration between public health drug policy activists, and hard science research um, to bring this information to the public, because I feel like I was also in the hard science field, and there's just not a lot of communication in, in bringing this to light, because if you're, you're saying this is not a new thing, but to me, this, uh, to me it sounds new. Yeah. Uh, first of all, public health is hard science. Right, of course. So um, one, Hard science, I mean by bench science. No, I, I, yeah. it's a great point, actually. Because this is one of the things that troubles me today about drug abuse research. It has become um, uh, the most uh, credible drug abuse research seems to be only some molecular level sort of investigation. Uh, genetics, brain imaging, or something like that. That's always, almost always taken out of context. And you won't find the answer when you take drug use out of context. So I think one of the things that we need to do is people in public health, people in the social sciences, they, meet, they need to be more vociferous about the importance of their work. And they need to stop trying to be biologists because they're not. And they need to continue to understand or remember that their job is to understand human behavior in complex situations. But one of the things that drives our ideas and what we think and the data that we collect is the priorities of the funding agency. Right. In this case, we're talking about the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They fund 90% of the world's research in this area. And their focus is very narrow on pathology 
and pathology makes up a small percentage of drug effects. The concern is that they think they have a comprehensive understanding of drugs when in fact they don't. So it's up to us, you all, to say, be more vocal about these other complicated issues. Because if you're not vocal, this is why this stuff is going on. So that's why I wrote the book. And it seems to me that there is a morality issue in terms of like politics, right, and, and drug policy. Absolutely. And a health issue, right, and be, be, making sure that people are safe in harm reduction policies and that sort of thing. So. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Hart. Thank I you for you coming on, uh, out. The JS station, WBEE, the other day. I said, I have right to on. go and see you, okay? Right on. Uh, if, just for the average ordinary person, the women, the people who live in the poor areas, who watch their sons and daughters uh, grow up and become drug addicts, okay? And I know you realize that the reason why alternatives are not offered is because this is what they want. If you kill a black man, you'll kill the race forever. These are the seeds of tomorrow, and that's the intention. So where do you come in with, I mean, do you expect these same people to, to legalize or decriminalize that, which, you know, assures that we stay right there on the bottom? So when you make that point, um, I think it's a, certainly a view that's held by lots of folks. And when you start to look at the consequences that are happening in our neighborhoods, you can't help but come away with that view sometimes. But one of the things I'll ask you to think about is the guy who's in the White House, the president, uh, the attorney general, the guy, the chief law enforcement officer in the country. Those are black guys. And I don't think that they would want our communities to perish. So it's harder to make that argument given that that's the case. Now, I will say that there have been people, including the president, including the attorney general, who may have been apathetic or appear to be apathetic to this issue. So one gets that interpretation. So it's really incumbent upon us to make sure they understand we voted for them and that we expect them to do something. Uh, because I think we're past the days of having people who uh, are in power who absolutely want to see us perish. I, think we're, I just think people are apathetic. One of the sort of consequences of segregation, we're still segregated when you look at the workplaces, when you look at a variety of places where we live, one of the prices of segregation, or I should say one of the luxuries of, of segregation, particularly for white folks, luxuries, is apathy and ignorance, willful ignorance. You don't have to look at this. But the price of segregation to many black folks are the things that you are describing. And so we need to have a, a real serious discourse about what the country looks like racially. And we haven't had the stomach for that since the 1960s. And so until that happens, we're going to have this kind of thinking. But we really need to force our public officials, our public intellectuals, to engage in this conversation. Because generations of black men, especially, have been lost. Thank you all for your time. <laughs>